Cindy. Well, and when, as a child uh, and then as a teenager, uh, Christian camps and conferences were, were a pretty significant part of my spiritual formation. And so I can recall many sort of light bulb moments, you know, those moments where something just switches on and you think, oh, yeah. Uh, I remember one time when I was about 15 or 16 where a speaker asked all of us who are in the room, to brainstorm together the attributes of God. That is, who is God? What, what do we know of God from the Bible? And a, and a flurry of hands went up and, and we came up with something like this, okay? God is almighty. God is gracious. Uh, I contributed, God is, God is sovereign, and I was very pleased with myself. And uh, when everything had died down, we'd finished, the, the speaker asked, now, now what's missing from that list? As the folk this morning uh, reminded me, a lot is missing from that list, right? Uh, there's one thing in particular, I suppose, that I hadn't thought about. He asked, well, what about God's jealousy? What about God's jealousy? After all, God is a jealous God. I thought, it hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me, right? That God might be jealous. Doesn't that conflict with his goodness and his, his love and his, his grace and his righteousness? And yet, that is actually how God describes himself at the very heart of the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments. And so, in Exodus, God would say, You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Notice that idolatry is the worshipping of idols, right? Something or someone other than God is forbidden because God is jealous. Because idolatry is like adultery. God has this exclusive love for and, and commitment to his people and he desires and he demands and he deserves an exclusive relationship with them. God is rightly jealous when his people are disloyal to him. And so there's nothing wrong with this sort of jealousy. Actually, it reflects the intensity of his love for us. Now, I begin with this reflection because uh, in Ezekiel 8, we're confronted with this divine jealousy. Judah, they'd found themselves, or at least a portion of Judah had found themselves in exile. They had grown so accustomed to God, so at ease that they had taken him for granted. And yet they had failed to reckon with the awful jealousy of God who will be taken seriously. Ezekiel 8 to 11, um, if, if you've read that portion before, and I encourage you to read it, uh, perhaps if you haven't already, maybe this week, Ezekiel 8 to 11 is the second of four sort of uh, dreamlike visions that the prophet receives. And we heard there in verse 1 of chapter 8 where it all begins, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting 
in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. And he sees that same fiery figure that he saw in Ezekiel 1. Do you remember that figure in Ezekiel 1? And his spirit is taken to Jerusalem. So he's in exile and his spirit's taken to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he meets or is confronted by the glory of the God of Israel. And of course, here in Jerusalem is where the glory of the God of Israel ought to be. Right? In, uh, in his temple, in Jerusalem, in Israel. But everything else that Ezekiel is about to see will repulse and repel the glory of God. I'm not sure whether you've tried to uh, gone on to realestate.com recently, but you may online view houses for rent or for sale virtually, right? You can have a sort of virtual tour of the house. Have you seen these? Well, that is basically what is happening here in Ezekiel chapter 8. God gives Ezekiel this virtual tour of his house in Jerusalem, and it is in utter chaos. There are four scenes, okay? And I want you to follow me, follow with me through these four scenes um, because they get nearer and nearer to the centre of the temple, okay? So scene number one, in the first scene, we're sort of immediately confronted by this idol of jealousy. That is an idol that provokes God to jealousy and it stood at the entrance to the temple complex, confronting everyone who, who wanted to uh, come in as they arrived. And it, it's an unidentified figure, that is, we don't know exactly who the statue was of, because the focus is not on, the, uh, not on the identity of the image, but actually on the divine outrage that it provokes. So you see, in the Bible, God's jealousy is always against idolatry. Sorry, idolatry. Always against idolatry. God had redeemed his people, and so he alone is worthy of their loyalty, and yet they've rejected him, and they've betrayed him for another. And God's jealousy was aroused to the point where, as we shall see, he can't hang around. He can't stand it. In verses 5 and 6, then he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The utterly detestable things that the Israelites are doing here. Things that are going to drive me far from my sanctuary. You're going to see things that are even more detestable. And so in the next scene, Ezekiel is brought to the entrance to the outer court, but he finds this hole in the wall and he digs into the wall and he finds a secret door. Right? Why, so, why so secretive? Because inside are 70 elders worshipping images of animals. And although we can't be certain, it's likely that these are actually the sort of the political leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, trying to invoke the support of Egyptian gods, because we know, on the other hand, that they were enlisting the help of the Egyptian armies. And so the clues are that first this ritual involved uh, worship of animal deities. That's very Egyptian, isn't it? Uh, that the elders were doing it. 
And thirdly, that it was all happening in secret. See, the, the, the leaders of Israel are leading Israel astray and their excuse is that they claim that God has abandoned them and that God can't see what they're doing. But of course, the truth is that God hasn't left, at least not yet. But again, God says there, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. And so in the third scene, Ezekiel finds at the entry to the temple women mourning the god uh, Tammuz. And we don't know a whole lot about um, him, right? But effectively, we think that it was a, a, a pagan cult of the dead. And so what was so offensive about this particular form of idolatry was that there was a cult of the dead going on in the temple of the living God. And secondly, this figure was actually a Babylonian hero. He's a Babylonian hero who, they thought, if they mourned him, it would actually bring on the next season. Verse 15. You're going to see things that are even more detestable than this. And so the last stop is right at the heart of the temple, in the inner court. This very important verse, verse 16. Then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance of the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were bowing down to the sun in the east. And so apart from entering the building itself, this was as close as you could get to the very presence of God. And yet here we find, most likely, 25 priests bowing down to the sun in the east with the temple behind them. They had turned their backs on God, both literally and symbolically, and they were doing it right in front of his face. And what made sun worship even worse in the current situation, was that the sun was among the most powerful of Babylonian gods. It is a picture of utter political and spiritual anarchy in the house of the Lord. And they had violated, hadn't they, the fundamental principle of the covenant relationship, right? You shall have no other gods before me and get this, you shall, have, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. They'd done all three. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. They'd been caught. They'd been caught red-handed. And God acts as a sort of prosecutor, sort of dragging Ezekiel along from scene to scene. And this, by the way, is not even a full catalogue of sins. This is, just, this is just a sample. What is happening is systemic, which means that the judgment of God was both fully deserved and actually long overdue. And so in chapter 9, if you haven't read chapter 9 yet, don't read it just before going to bed, perhaps when you wake up in the morning. But in chapter 9, enter the executioners. These are seven figures, six with armed with swords and one with a pen, sort of take notes and sort of check results. And beginning at the temple, they were to slaughter everyone. Except for those who actually mourn this sort of sin. That was so systemic. And who are these executioners? 
Well, actually, on the stage of history, they're going to be the Babylonians themselves. It's ironic, isn't it? Rewind for a second to chapter 8, verse 17, where God effectively asks this. Is this idolatry a trivial matter? In other words, does it, does it really matter? And of course, the implied answer is yes, it does matter. Is it a trivial matter? No. But sisters and brothers, idolatry was not just their problem. It's our problem. It's our problem. Idolatry has been characteristic of all people, of all times, ever since the fall. John Calvin once described uh, the human heart as an idol factory. As an idol factory. See, we may or may not make idols with our hands, but we sure do with our hearts as we exchange the glory of God for the glory of something else, whether it be people, whether it be possessions, whether it be pursuits, whether it be passions. Anything can be an idol, and actually everything has been an idol. And friends, at this point in Ezekiel, I think we should be challenged to sort of run a diagnostic on our own hearts to discern our own idols and with God's help dismantle them because the battle against idolatry is a fight for our lives and the lives of others and most importantly God's honour. You see we've already likened idolatry to adultery but actually idolatry is also robbery it's also perversion. It's, it's robbery because in idolatry we take what is due to God and give it to someone or something else. And it's perversion because in idolatry we, instead of giving our devotion to God, the creator, we give it to created things. Right? We are his. We're his by reason of creation. We're his by reason of redemption. He alone is worthy of our devotion. And yet... What would happen if God took Ezekiel on a tour of the temple of our hearts? I don't know. I just wonder what he would see. Remembering, of course, that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, we can so easily get caught up with the evil out there. And we can become blind to the evil that's in here. See, the sin out there that provokes God's anger, provokes God's grief, but the sin in here among God's people provokes God's jealousy. See, when we profess loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we owe our salvation, to whom we owe everything, but then live lives that are absorbed by the priorities 
and the idolatries of this world, there's something treacherous about that, isn't there? This is about to get very real, this warning you. So in what ways might you be provoking God's jealousy? Remembering idols can be uh, concrete things, abstract things, specific things, general things. And by the way, they're not necessarily bad things. Oftentimes they're good things that we've turned into the ultimate thing. So what good thing have you turned into the ultimate thing? And so here are some diagnostic questions to ask yourself now. Have a go at asking and answering these right now in the quietness of your own hearts and minds. What do you fear? What do you fear? These are going to help discern our idols. What do you fear? What do you tend to worry about? What do you believe would bring you the greatest pain or misery? What do you believe would bring you the greatest pleasure or or happiness? Deep down, what do you want? What is your ruling passion? One pastor named um, Nicholas MacDonald, he put it this way. Hello, I am an idol. Don't be afraid, it's just me. I I notice you're turned off by the name idol and allow me, it's okay, I, I get that a lot, so allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. And what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the centre of existence. You look up to those who have me, you look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you, or speak back to you, but that's what you like about me. No, I'm never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back, and no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. Anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. 
Perhaps it's the cult of family. The idol of self. Perhaps it's your precious freedoms. Friends, we belong to God alone. And in language that is remarkably similar to that of the Old Testament, we read this in 1 Peter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's us. We have been saved. Therefore, I want to circle around back to Ezekiel because chapters 8, 9, 10 and 11 is all about the departure of the glory of God from the temple, from Jerusalem. And so in chapter 9, toward the beginning of chapter 9, we read that now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. And then in chapter 10, God's glory departs from the temple itself. And then in chapter 11, God's glory departs from Jerusalem. God leaves his sanctuary. And that God leaves, leaves Israel exposed. This must have been one of the darkest moments of Ezekiel's ministry, which is saying something. As he saw the glory of his covenant God, Yahweh, leaving his temple, leaving his city, leaving his people to their destruction. And of course the question is, at the end of chapter 11 is, will God's glory ever come back? Will he ever come back? There's this suspense right about the future that's not fully resolved until much later on in the book. And yet in chapter 11 there, we are given a taste of what is to come. So the second half of chapter 11, God summarises and he anticipates the glorious promises that are going to be filled out later on in Ezekiel. And so he promises he will, one, still be with them as their sanctuary. Two, gather them from the distant lands and return them to the promised land. Three, give them a new heart and a new spirit, enabling them to turn away from idolatry and to obey him. And four, accept them, accept them as his covenant people again. Have you ever given a child a time out? I must have given about three to Seth yesterday. The exile was like a big time out for God's people. He, he gave them a time out from the land, from, from the throne, from, from the temple, all of which they had begun to misunderstand and even idolise. But like any loving father, he, he, he goes to them in their time out and kneels down and embraces them. God leaves the sanctuary of the temple to become a sanctuary for his people, the remnant in exile. 
Although I sent them far away, he says, among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. God himself will be a sanctuary for them. It's a remarkable irony in the context of Ezekiel that warns of the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And actually, friends, it is a picture, isn't it, of the love that God has shown for us in Christ, who came to us in our despair. And at just the right time, when we were still powerless, in fact, while we were still enemies, he died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Friends, we're his. We're his. If you trust in Jesus, you're his. You're his by reason of creation. But you're his by reason of redemption. He alone is worthy of our devotion. Let's not provoke him to jealousy. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that you might do a work in us to unearth these idols that our hearts have so readily made and then with the help of the Holy Spirit to dismantle them that we may give you due honour and live for you. Father, I pray that your word might dwell in us and bear much fruit for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.